listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. to guide us in this thinking and discussion. Uh, her presentation this evening is the 21st Century Gilded Age, a Global Trend. So, so love that title, right? Inside Afghanistan after the Taliban shows like what a great predictor I am. So maybe you just want to take everything I say for the rest of the evening with a large grain of salt. But yeah, I mean, what I'd like to do this evening is kind of take a, and I'm likely to walk around a little bit, um, so I don't know if that's going to work, but especially, we are recording, right? So I kind of have to stay here-ish. Anyway, we'll see. Uh, uh, I do want to take a step back and try to see if I can put some of the phenomena that we've been living through and observing elsewhere into a kind of arc of a trend. And I want to start out I want to start out with this stuff, <laughs> right? I mean, I get it, right? It's the root of all evil, it always has been, and things like that. But I actually think we're living in a period for about the last two, two three decades where that stuff, money, has been crowding out other values as a measure of social stature and standing. Not that it hasn't always played that role, but it, it seems to be expanding increasingly exclusively. Money is the way we measure our social standing. And how many of you have lived in Seattle for more than 15 years? Right. Tell me about the housing stock. <laughs> I mean, I live in D.C., it's ridiculous. I took a 60-mile bike ride, you know, like taking the metro, public transport, out to the end, and then a 60-mile loop. I did not get out of McMansions. That's happened in this period, right? Um, I spent two and a half weeks a couple of years ago in Nigeria, and I asked people, north and south, city and village, I asked people two questions. And the, the second question was, has the meaning of money, has the social meaning of money changed in your life? And the answers I got were absolutely fascinating. First of all, they were emphatic. Oh my god, yeah, I mean, almost like your answer on the, on the housing stock. Yes, they were really interesting and often, um, they were very um, explicit, I mean, very specific, and often unexpected. For example, I got, Yes, people use money to intimidate each other. That, that, that I could dig. But then I'd say, okay, how? By giving it to you. You intimidate someone by giving them money. I said, what do you mean by that? Well, if they give me money, I can't criticize them anymore. That was an interesting one. Then another one I got from a lot of people was, it used to matter where your money came from. That's what was most important about it. And I got a variety of stories 
like the guy who said, when I was eight, I found some money on the ground. I was so panicked about picking it up and taking it home and having my parents find money on me that I couldn't explain that I started running around saying, did you lose the money? Did you, you know, and, and he gave the money away to the first passerby who said, yeah, I lost some money. And he said, but now we don't care anymore. Now we celebrate people, and people were talking about television where you would see, you know, the big men and women, you know, their wedding ceremonies are broadcast on television. We know these people are looting the public treasury, and yet we celebrate, you know, their weddings on television. Um, so in this context, to compete in this race for, if you will, zeros in a bank account, right, elites um, around the world, and that's what's kind of interesting about this, is it's happening in developed countries and it's happening in developing countries also. Elites are rewriting the rules and or selectively enforcing them to, in their own favor, basically, so they can compete in this race, which incidentally is an unlimited race. Like, there isn't a place where you say, okay, I got there, because you know, if the director has, you know, seven zeros in his bank account, well, I need eight, right? You know, and then, so there's no end to this, which is also, I remember Admiral Mullen wondering how much is enough? And, and it really troubled him, how much is enough? How much does President Karzai need? And the answer is there isn't any enough because this is a competitive, it's a, it's a status competition. And this is what I mean by corruption, is this rewriting of the rules and, and selectively enforcing them. So I think that too often when we hear about, or when we think of the word corruption, what comes to mind are sort of petty, I don't want to say petty, but venalities, you know, like isolated venalities. This official, you know, took an envelope for doing this, or this official, Padded the budget on you know a project a high, you know whatever a, um, hospital refurbishing project or something like that, and we see it as or this cop shook people down for a bribe and we see it as these isolated acts of venality. Instead, what I found and I and I started out kind of thinking about this in Afghanistan and understanding this systemic nature of it in Afghanistan, but increasingly I've been taking what I learned there and, and going to other countries and saying, wow, does this work like this? Does this, you know? And what I'm finding is in at least 60 to 70 countries worldwide and a number of others are on the continuum and we're gonna get there, right? Because <laughs> everything has to do with Trump in the world, right? Um, but it's actually better thought of as the operating system of quite sophisticated networks. Now what's confusing is we'll take a country like Cameroon and say, boy, that's a failing government there. It's not providing for its people. Well, right, it's failing as a government, but the network is incredibly successful at achieving its objective, which is maximizing revenues for network members. It's not interested in governing. 
it's interested, its objective is maximizing return for members of the network, and they're doing that really well. Governing is, at best, a front activity, and at worst, sometimes it's one of the means by which you, know, you maximize revenues. Um, these networks, so another confusing thing about these networks, we're Americans, right? We love, we could talk the rest of the evening about who's worse for your health, the public sector or the private sector, right? I mean, we love to get into that fight. The networks weave together public and private sectors. They weave in out-and-out out criminals. So again, even if we disagree on which is worse, the public sector or the private sector, we, again, as Americans, have a tendency to say, yeah, but public sector and private sector are essentially illicit actors. And then the bad guys over here are the organized criminals and the terrorists and stuff like that. But these networks, and so, you know, I, I mean, I spent a decade in Afghanistan. I lived in Kandahar, uh, so I had a soap factory, right? Like we can get into jokes about trying to clean up Afghanistan one, you know, hand washing at a time, right? You know, but we would um, we would distill essential oils, so we're producing our own raw materials. Well, I couldn't get labor to collect our artemisia and our, you know, the the flowers that we need, the roses that we needed to distill in May because everyone was going to the poppy field. I mean, that was just a complete element of the local economy. And oh, by the way, President Karzai's younger brother, so he didn't own his own opium. He didn't really need to. The way he controlled the industry was he could appoint the officials along the trafficking routes. A friend of mine was a, had been a police officer, and his older brother was a district police chief, finds a convoy of three vehicles stuffed to the gills with the stuff. So he confiscates the convoy. He said, this was in the early days, he confiscates the satellite phone. A phone call comes in saying, where are you people? So my guy picks up the phone. He says, well, I'm you know, so-and-so, and I've got them in custody. He is ordered to release them. He says, I'm not releasing them. You know, there's three vehicles stuffed with the stuff. And he is fired you know, within two or three days. Um, so you've got the brother of the president of the country is one of the main actors in this industry. I've been working on Honduras for the last year, and there's just been a case in New York where the son of the previous president of Honduras, you know, pled guilty to trafficking an ungodly amount of cocaine into the United States. Um, you've got, you know, Families that are drug cartels, they, they kind of spread their personnel across the sectors, right? So you've got one brother who's a governor, another brother who runs the cartel, and a third brother who runs the sugar and the meat processing industry in the town. So um, what I found is these networks look a little bit different in different countries. So in a place like Azerbaijan, for example, the overlap between public and private sector is almost complete. So the um, ruling family of Azerbaijan owns 11 banks. So they basically own the financial services. They also own these massive conglomerates that are into basically every lucrative um, uh, key 
economic activity, including in particular high-end real estate. Oil is a public, you know, so it's a national oil company. So they got that. They got energy. Those are three sectors that crop up again and again in terms of revenue streams that are captured. Energy, high-end real estate and infrastructure, and um, what was the other one that I just mentioned? Banking. So are you guys starting to hear some echoes, <laughs> right? I mean, take a look at, uh, and, and, and I feel like this administration is an apotheosis, but it didn't start you know, on January 20th, 2017. I mean, the concentration of Wall Street in government isn't all that different between this administration and the previous one. Um, and we can, you know, sort of go down there, but, I mean, go down the line of, of other ones. In Honduras, the overlap I discovered isn't quite as complete. The, the private sector and public sector and criminal sector retain a degree of autonomy. There is an exchange of, um, of personnel. So uh, you'll have a president which comes from the, um, from the uh, uh, group of families that dominate the private sector. So they had a president, you know, a couple of presidents back. Um, They'll have a key minister or something like that. But there's a distinction in Indonesia also. The main private sector members of the network are separate from the main public sector members of the network. In Moldova, what I discovered is the network is run by the private sector. And basically the government is you know, kind of controlled by the private sector. So they look different in different places. There's going to be a different degree of internal rivalry that disrupts the network. It's not like these things are perfectly oiled, smooth running machines, right? There's always internal rivalry. Interestingly, that rivalry is often expressed through electoral politics. So uh, Honduran villagers at some point said to me, you know, we've discovered that the political parties come in here and they're really coming in here to divide us against each other. But neither political party really has our interests at heart. I mean, what he could have said is the political contest is really just a network rivalry. And it, you know, that's what they're fighting over is their share of these spoils. Again, I think there are some, potentially some echoes here. Um, the role of the public sector members of the network is what I said earlier. It's to write the rules to benefit the network and also to control the enforcement, you know, um, instruments of enforcement. And what you find often is that there's, there's always a formal instrument of force and it's usually a specialized unit either within the army or the police, and it depends on the country. So in Mubarak's Egypt, for example, the military was a kleptocratic network unto itself. And then you had another one which was centered around Gamal Mubarak, Mubarak's son. He used a particular element of police called Amanashurta, which was a specific unit within the police. In Cameroon, it's a brigade within the army, which is called the Rapid Intervention Brigade. Um, in Honduras, it's pretty interesting because, again, the U.S. plays an important role there, and we aren't 
providing military assistance. So there's a military special unit, but what the president of Honduras is doing is he's doing these joint task forces. So he'll take police units that we train, and we're, you know, we say, okay, we're training the police because that's not the military and it's not guilty of human rights violations and all that stuff. But then the president is merging the units and deploying them side by side. And so he's blurring these distinctions. Um, often there are informal instruments of force. So again, in Honduras, what I found interesting, I had been hearing a lot about, you know, the young migrants who were coming across the border and hearing that it was largely because they were being extorted and they were suffering gang violence and extortion at the hands of the gangs. So I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting. I'm used to the police extorting. When I got there, I kind of get on the ground and I say, I wonder if the police are outsourcing their extortion to the gangs. And sure enough, that's what was happening. In other words, the the police give the gangs free reign, a sort of limited free reign, so long as the gangs kick back some of their extortion money to the police. Um, and so then the gangs become a kind of plausible, deniable, plausibly deniable instrument of force, which can sometimes be deployed by the police. In Afghanistan, you know, there were a certain number of Taliban who came from President Karzai's tribe. I mean, if I was shown up dead, right, and someone had seen a guy in a turban, you know, hanging around, you know, like no one would have asked a question. Um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons, probably the only reason I didn't end up dead is because the Karzai's decided this might, you know, this might be a little bit costly. You know, they were afraid of, deter they, they were deterred. They were afraid of the repercussions. But certainly no one would have wondered in an environment like that, if you have a few Taliban on your team, that can be incredibly helpful. So just to be a little bit provocative and draw a, an, an immediate um, parallel in the United States, we all you know, watched the events in Charlottesville. And there was a lot of discussion about President Trump kind of throwing a wink or a dog whistle or something toward his voting base. Another interpretation is that's not really his voting base, but it's a potential informal instrument of force. In other words, is he consolidating a little core of people who are willing to use violence that he can then kind of wave around, you know, as a scarecrow in case this, some of these investigations get too close to him. Like, you don't want to impeach me, or you don't want to investigate too far, because there are some people who are going to commit mayhem. I mean, I don't know. This is just a, I'm just kind of throwing it out there. But it's a really common um, kind of feature that I have seen elsewhere. Anyway, this kind of, so another point that we all remember is corruption was a really big issue in the, United, in, in the 2016 election, right and left, right? Drain the swamp, rigged system, political revolution, our politics is corrupt, right? Populations are seeing this rigging of the system. They are indignant about it in, in around the world. I mean, it's really 
remarkable. Um, if you look right now at anti-corruption protest movements around the world, I mean, I can start reeling off the countries. I won't even get them all. Brazil, Guatemala, Honduras, um, Burkina Faso, Ethiopia-ish, um, uh, Senegal, uh, Romania, um, Slovenia, Mo Mo Moldova, Malaysia, I'm sort of doing it, Lebanon, um, South Korea, South Africa. I mean, it's pretty amazing. We're living through a kind of Arab Spring, except it's not just Arab countries at this point. So to either manage this indignation or exploit it, the elites themselves or spoilers, and sometimes they're one and the same, right, are making use of a number of tactics. One of them is out and out repression, right? We're all used to seeing that, that you know, uh, so that's what's happening in Turkey. Um, it's happening in Azerbaijan. It's happening, you know, in a number of countries. But there's some more subtle techniques that are being used. One of them is legalisms meaning hair-splitting, legal, you know, hiding behind legalism. So for me, one of the most profound, one of the most significant events to happen here during campaign season was not, you know, the latest leak or the latest uh, outrage that one candidate or another had said, but it was actually a Supreme Court decision that came down in June of last year throwing out the jury conviction for corruption under, you know, for corruption charges. I see one nod up there of Virginia Governor Bob McDonald. You're not from that part of the country, are you? No? Does, how many people remember that, that decision? Interesting. How many remember the decision um, that allowed, that basically struck down laws against gay marriage? Supreme Court decision. Oh, about the same number. So I was expecting to see more on the latter than on the former. They came down the same day. But the corruption, so the McDonald decision was a really fascinating one. It was eight to zero. Eight to zero. I listened to one of my favorite kind of wonky interview shows. Diane Ring, anybody? I, she's off the air now, but you know, and Diane is great, and she had her usual Washington pundits, and they blew right by it. They weren't even interested in that. They wanted, you know, and she had to stop them and say, hey, wait a second, isn't this a serious thing? And, and, and one of them said, God, by that standard, every politician in Washington would be, it's like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was shocked by that, and I was shocked that um, no one, I could even see, let's say, I, I was shocked it was eight to zero. I wasn't entirely shocked that the decision went that way, but eight to zero bothered me. And what also bothered me was no even concurring opinion that said, okay, given the way the statute is written, I had to, you know, find this way, but for the health of American democracy, we better think about, you know, the role of quid pro quo, you know, whatever, corruption in our system. Nada. And reading the opinion, one of the last lines of the opinion is pretty shocking. It basically says, this court is, it is not the concern of this court, or this court is not concerned with uh, tawdry details of Rolex watches and Ferraris. 
Rather, this court is concerned with the, the you know, impact on the American political system of the government's unbounded interpretation of the federal property statute. And I'm like, wow. So it's more dangerous to American democracy that we prosecute corruption than that we commit it. At that one, wow. And, and what they did, so legalisms, what they did actually quid pro quo, meaning the bribe, the money, and the baubles, and the stuff was in fact given in return for something that McDonald did. That was substantiated. What the court said is that what he did didn't constitute an official act under the terms of the statute. So we've gotten beyond quid pro quo bribery to, oh, well, the quid has to be this kind of quid to be, you know, to count as the quid that, you know. And, and so it didn't count as an official act. What McDonald had done was organize meetings. The guy who was giving him the stuff wanted some dietary supplement made out of caffeine to get clinical trials in the state university right here. And so McDonald is calling up the state secretary of education to advise that he lean on the university to have these clinical trials. Now he's making these calls sitting behind his governor's desk on the governor's phone from the governor's mansion, but somehow that doesn't count as an official act. Anyway, that's an example of illegalism. Another example of illegalism, frankly, is the Clinton Foundation. So we have in our constitution, it says federal employees may not accept items of value provided by foreign governments or their agents. I'm working for Mike Mullen. We go to Kuwait for the 10th anniversary or 20th anniversary of the first Gulf War and get back on the airplane and there's a stack of these beautiful little boxes. So I take the box with my name on it off the stack and I open it and I eye the Rolex watch sitting in that box and it was a beautiful watch and I close the box and stick it back on the stack because I can't keep it unless I want to buy it back. That's the way the statute, I mean, that's the way the constitutional provision is sort of, so you get a kind of certain amount. You get like $150 or $200 and then anything above that, you have to buy it back at market value and I didn't want the watch that badly. Okay, so the foundation isn't technically hers, right? It's not her money. It's a foundation. But in Uzbekistan, there's something called Fund Forum, which is a charitable foundation that belongs to, or at the time, it belonged to President Karimov's daughter, Gulnora, right? And if you were in the telecoms market in Uzbekistan, every once in a while, all of the cell phone towers would go down. And if you wanted, you know, you've got 100,000 furious customers on the line. And if you want, or at your door or something, if you want to restore service to them, you get this call saying, if you put $280,000 into Fund Forum, the lights will go back on on your cell towers, right? Tunisia and Benali had the same thing. They had these charitable organizations that turn out to be black boxes in Tunisia. All of you people who, how many people teach here? One, two, couple. Anyway, you guys would, as government employees, you would have to make voluntary, you would have to make mandatory contribution, mandatory voluntary contributions into, I think it was called 2424, the fund in Tunisia. So when the king of Morocco, 
Morocco puts you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars into the Clinton Foundation, technically under our laws, that's not an emolument. But believe me, the king of Morocco thinks that he's ingratiating himself to the Secretary of State. Um, so that's legalisms. Another thing that these elites or else spoilers use is either identity or nationalist rhetoric. We are, as a species, incredibly vulnerable to creating in-groups, you know, to banding, making it a, a group affiliation and seeing other people as the outgroup. And so we're, we're easily played upon with nationalist or identity rhetoric. And you can think of a number, Putin has done it brilliantly to get, so, so this is to manage the indignation. Putin has managed the indignation of the Russian population very effectively by, you know, instrumentalizing nationalist rhetoric. Chavez did a pretty good job too. Um, Bannon, arguably, has done similar uh, work here. Ideals-based rhetoric is another thing that gets instrumentalized. So, believe it or not, violent religious extremists, a lot, most of their recruitment is ideal-based rhetoric. They are, and we can get into this a little bit further, but this is what I really wrote about in Future State, because that's what I was discovering in Afghanistan, is people were turning to the Taliban out of their indignation at the corruption of the government. It wasn't some pie-in-the-sky ideology. It was, they were being told, the reason our government is this corrupt is because it's not obeying God's law. And, and so the argument made by ISIS or the Taliban or Boko Haram is actually an ideal-based argument. And you could say here, you know, the focus on LGBTQ and such issues, which is an ideal, and it's an important ideal, but it really diverted a lot of attention in this country away from the capture of the political economy by the elites on the right as well as the left. I mean, you know, it diverted a lot of attention from this issue. So what they get by using legalisms and nationalist rhetoric and ideals-based rhetoric is either, as I said, quiescence, they manage the indignation, or they get insurrection. And the insurrection, as I suggested, can take the form of violent religious extremism. And I won't go all the way down that rabbit hole unless you want to when we turn this into a conversation, but that's really what I focused on in future state. And I found that militant puritanical religion as a reaction against systemic corruption is not um, limited to Islam in the 21st century. Um, I actually found this unbelievable quote from John Locke was, you know, like, right, Locke, the 17th century political, you know, and we're all very proud of this guy, he, you know, right? Uh, when there is a barefaced resting of the law to indemnify or basically serve the purposes of a man or a party of men, war is made on the sufferers. Pretty strong language. War is made on the sufferers who lacking an appeal on earth to right them, are left to the only remedy in such cases, an appeal to heaven. 
he's basically predicting violent religious extremism as a reaction against the kind of rigged system that I'm talking about. Now I'm like, wow, yes! You know, that was kind of my hypothesis. I'm like, wow, from the hoary pages of John Locke. And then I'm like, who was this guy? He was a Puritan. He knew what he was talking about. He was the next generation after the English Civil War, which was a bloody and violent, you know, Puritan, you know, uh, not not a calm event. So I'm like, wow. Uh, let me take that one back to the source. So I go back historically through the Dutch Revolt, which I had never heard of before. Again, I'm not going to drag you into it all. But like, all right, Martin Luther. And I would recommend that every one of you just, uh, when you go home, just Google the 95 Theses and start reading them. Just spend 10 minutes. About 87 of the 95 Theses are about corruption. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. And let's not forget the Protestant Reformation was a violent extremist movement. It may have eventually developed into things that we like to see as different. But boy, oh boy, it shed a lot of blood and it broke a lot of buildings. Interestingly, I mean, the parallels with Al-Qaeda are pretty interesting. They went after not just the noses on statues because it was blasphemous to show a face, but they went after every part of the church that was kind of shoving their faces in the money that the church was amassing. So it was the statues, and it was the marble bat the baptismal fonts, and it was the churns of butter, and it was the jewels on the statues, and it was the linens, and you know, and I'm like, wow, this looks something like you know going after Wall Street, right? Again, I'm not trying to say these are identical or they're morally equivalent, but I'm saying the parallels are pretty interesting. So that's extremism. You get revolution. I mean, you get, you know, let's take the entire, you know, a big swath of the Arab world plus Ukraine, right? Um, and then you get the kind of violent repercussions that sometimes, you know, you blow things up and you can't quite control what happens afterwards. And you get voting for, I mean, unlikely candidates, be it a comedian in Italy or be it, you know, right, um, various other types of unlikely candidates. And, and so often, you know, people will say, if you see the Trump vote as a similar phenomenon to this, that doesn't make sense because he's even more corrupt than the system that, and I'm like, yeah, by the time people are driven to extremes, they're not choosing between brands of toothpaste, toothpaste anymore. They're voting for a wrecking ball. They want to blow it up. So when my Afghan neighbors you know, got tempted by the Taliban, they weren't quite saying the Taliban are better. But they're saying the Taliban are going to blow this up, and maybe the pieces will come down in some different kind of way. Now, too often, those choices turn out to be perverse. And believe me, the people I know in northern Nigeria who initially were, and I know a lot of them, who initially were pretty sympathetic to Boko Haram, believe me, they regretted it afterwards. But, but when you're a 19-year-old you know, Nigerian man, the judge has just raped your sister for the privilege of hearing her case in court, you want to shoot the judge. And you've got an insurgency who's going to hand you a gun and an argument for why you need to shoot the judge. And, you know, my cooperative members in Kandahar in 2008, 2009, they had to work hard not to join the Taliban. 
I mean, the Taliban were everywhere. Everyone that worked with me had family members in the Taliban. So you piss these kids off enough, and at some point, you know, it's like, yeah. I mean, I had one of my own classes member, former police officer himself, who was so pissed off one day, he said, if tomorrow I see somebody laying an IED in the road, and I see a police vehicle going down that road, so help me God, I'm not going to say anything. Now, was that literally true? I don't know. But he's telling me, he's a former cop, and I'm an American, and he's telling me this. That gives you a sense of, of, of how this can go. Um, and, and, and why, when people are driven to that level of indignation, they're not making, uh, you know, you know, a fine-tuned decision between, yeah, she's corrupt, but he's more corrupt. You, the people are driven beyond that. So, what do we do? What do we do? <laughs> right. I mean, not quite the rich, let's say the super rich. And not even quite every single one of the super rich, because some of them are on our side, I think. Um, but, I think you're, you're exactly right in one dimension, which is what do we do ourselves in our everyday life? Like, where do we bank? Where do we, you know, I mean, in this day of this stuff counts a lot, we can vote with this, not just by putting it into political campaigns, but where do we, where do we put this? Every dollar we spend is a vote. So let's think about that. Let's also think about um, uh, companies are increasingly susceptible to reputational risk, right? So where we see a law firm, like another example, and, and this didn't, I didn't get anywhere with this, but just an example. The former finance minister of Nigeria presided over the loss of approximately a billion dollars a month in oil revenues. Now, I'm not saying she stole the money, but she was sitting there when a billion dollars of oil revenues per month would disappear and would not making it into government coffers. Her colleague, the governor of the central bank, put this together. He was like, wait a second, and he started comparing the basically the government revenue, this was back in, at the time, this was going around in 2012, 2013, uh, uh, it was high oil prices. And he was looking, comparing to last time oil prices had been at the same level, and comparing output, and he was like, wait a second, there's, there's a shortfall here, what's going on here? So he put it together, and he found at least unexplained a billion dollars a month. She, castigated him, he got fired, she never ever in public or private said anything negative about the president or the administration under which she was working where this money went. Yale University chose in its wisdom to give her an honorary doctorate. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So, so these guys, they really want money laundering services and we do a lot of that. Uh, where, who's got the three buildings in Seattle? Uh, Silver Lake Center. 
Sarawak governor of Malaysia, if you guys heard about the one MDB, that's another billion dollar scandal. Right. So he's involved in that. This guy owns three prestigious buildings in this town. Uh, you know, that's something that University of Washington students could do a pretty funny demonstration around one of these buildings with, a, you know, freedom of speech, right? Let's do a demonstration. Let's embarrass them. It's not illegal. It's not violent. You're not hurting anyone. But you're making it a little bit uncomfortable for these folks. I wrote to the chairman of the Board of Trustees of Yale because I happen to know her. Really interesting. South African who had been a passionate anti-apartheid campaigner when she was young. I'm like, wow. And I didn't quite go there. I didn't have, I'm pretty uncensored, but even I couldn't quite say, really? Would, what would you have said about a university giving an honorary degree to, the, to a member of Tikvota's administration? Would you have been okay with that back when you were 19 years old? You know? Um, so I think there are quite a few, we've got to convert the culture on this stuff, just as we have done it on things like sweatshops. That's moving. It hasn't moved all the way, but it's a lot less easy to make Nikes or whatever it is in sweatshops than it was a decade ago. And I think there's room to do it on some of this stuff. Um, more generally, and this is a little bit less practical, but Growth, right? Who thinks economic growth is a good thing? Yeah, I'm looking at you. That's pretty interesting. Most of us do, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but there's a tendency to equate growth, economic growth, with the health of a society. That's just not accurate anymore. It's much more important to understand how is that growth distributed across the society. Sometimes when you have economic growth, but it's poorly distributed, it's actually terrible for the society. Um, secondly, I begin to wonder, like you, I begin to wonder, I mean, unbridled growth on a finite body is sometimes called cancer, and it's often fatal. Why we think that that model is going to work, and especially when it's fueled by the competition over this, that's uh, infinite competition that I was talking about before. Because to get this, what you have to do, largely, not only, sometimes you can convert ideas to this, but ideas in and of themselves rarely get you this. It's usually ideas plus, and it's plus, what's on the land, what's on the land, what's under the land, and the people who work the land, and the people who work, you know, ancillary things. That's what you are converting into this. And the point is, how much of that can you extract to get how much of this? And that's not a really sustainable model. And so I think that that's just something that's worth consideration. Um, I think as a society, we need to come up with other measures of work to compete over, apart from just this. And it means we need to be right, refrain from writing the rules. And you know, how do we translate these broad principles into action? That's a little bit harder. But refrain from writing the rules of the political and economic game 
to favor those who have already amassed disproportionate power in both realms. I mean, at the moment, those rules are being written to favor the people who already have the power in both realms. And we also need to write rules that reward somehow and at least help keep body and soul together those who seek to achieve the other measures of work. So, again, those of you who teach here, I bet you're not making as much money as some people who have the same degrees that you do who work in other sectors in this town. Now, not that you need to make as much money as they do, but you need to have a dignified livelihood. I was looking at a University of Maryland campus in Western Maryland, really interesting campus, that the student body is basically half farmer's kids from Western Maryland and half inner city Baltimore kids. It's a great student body. If I want to teach there as an adjunct, $3,000 a course. Basically, that's money. I mean, that's, our society is, like, that is a completely out of proportion way of allocating resources in a society like America in the 21st century. Um, who's a social scientist in here? Neither am I, sort of, okay. Metrics, I mean, how do we count success, right? How do we measure what counts as a successful society? At the moment, GDP growth is kind of the standing, and clearly that's not doing it. So how can we devise metrics for a successful society that takes some of these other values into account? Um, Piketty in France, who you know, wrote this right, book, like how do you write a big fat, who read it? I didn't, I own the thing, I bought it in French, you know, and I haven't read it, but bless his heart for writing the damn thing and for making a bestseller. Like, how do you get a big, fat economics home to be a bestseller? Um, capital in the 21st century, I'm talking about. Now, he's been messing around with this idea of metrics for a successful society. I'm not sure how far they've gotten. But, um, so those are some of the more highfalutin ideas. But one way of getting to those highfalutin ideas, as I say, is looking at what do we do in our everyday life that shows that we value these other things. How do we act on a daily basis to value the other things? You know, how do we inconvenience ourselves such that, you know, I mean, it might require a little bit of inconvenience. It might require, you know, us to change our habit. It might take, I mean, Again, I, I'm not saying I know how this works, but I was really surprised to discover that I, you know, I carry around a credit card like everybody else, and it comes from one of these, came from one of these crappy banks that was like up to the eyes in 2008. And I'm like, wait a second, I bet I've got a choice. So I spent an hour online, and I found something called the Coalition for Banking on Value, and it's an international coalition of small banks that, you know, follow certain commitments in terms of who they loan to and you know, stuff like that, and I found that I could get a credit card from one of those banks. And, you know, so I just feel like there's, we've got a lot more choices in terms of how we show what values we care about, that it just takes a little bit more effort and a little bit 
less convenience. And we can start acting in that way. And maybe you say, well, I'm just one individual in 350 million Americans. That doesn't make a difference. Well, maybe not. But if I don't do it, that certainly won't make a difference. So let's all think of three of these things that we can do. Thank you very much. And I'd love to hear what you I'd really love to. I, I went on a little bit longer than I hoped I would. How's a network different now than it was 100 years ago? I think in a lot, excuse me, in a lot of ways it isn't. So sometimes I think about it's sort of like the crown heads of Europe, right? Where they all felt like, and they were often in, in the same family, and they all had a lot, you know, the royalty of Austria and the royalty of France and England had more in common with each other than any of them had in common with their own subjects. I mean, if you talk to, you know, some of the senior executives at Citibank or, you know, a bunch of these multinationals, I think you'll find that they've got, some of the super rich, they've got a very similar vision of themselves as kind of global, members of a global set that are networked with each other and networked into the set at home, and they've got more in common with that set than they do with their own populations. That being said, I do think that a couple of things have happened. On this front, I think the collapse of communism actually did make an impact on the kind of way money was seen globally. Um, I mean, America has always been a little more focused on money and individualism than a lot of other countries, but I feel like in, in a lot of the world, and even to some extent, less so, but to some extent here, there was a kind of ceiling put on how much personal amassing and displaying of riches you could do. So in the Soviet Union, for example, the people at the top of the system, yes, they had all kinds of perks that ordinary people didn't, but they didn't own them. They got to go to the dachas, but they didn't own the dachas, the fancy houses. They got to shop in you know, dollar stores where they could get luxury goods, but they didn't have five or six Ferraris parked in their driveway. Same with Egypt. It was really interesting to look at the military. And what was confusing to me is, why was the 2011 uprising against the Gamal Mubarak network, corrupt network, but not against the military corrupt network? And the answer was, the military, first of all, hit it. Second of all, it was user-throughed. It wasn't, they didn't, meaning they got to use stuff. They got to have you know, vacations in fancy hotels on the uh, Mediterranean, but they didn't, um, again, get to own massive mansions. Um, so there's, an, there's a kind of cultural shift that starts to happen, but then also, as you suggested, the technology for not only networking, but also moving your money around and hiding it. So the secrecy jurisdictions, the shell company layering of shell companies, the financial, the complexity of financial transactions, and the fluidity of capital, 
really facilitates this this kind of thing. Yeah, right there. Right. So that's a great question. Where do you find out the information to be able to then act on some of this stuff? So the Coalition on Banking on Values, I just started Googling. I hadn't heard of it either. But I just started putting questions into and And that's how I Google, is I'll literally write a full sentence in to the search engine. So are there any banks that you know, make a practice of lending to underprivileged, you know, I mean, something like that, right? And eventually I got to it. So some of it is um, resourceful searching that we can all do. But the other really important element is investigative journalism. And that is, we are living in a golden moment, believe it or not, of investigative journalism. It's not, ha I mean, it's happening right now in some of the major newspapers. But it's also happening online. So there's the um, uh, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ. They're the, they're the consortium that got the Panama Papers. And, the, and what's really interesting that's happening, and then you've got stuff like Reveal on public radio. You've got ProPublica. You've got um, OCCRP, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Network, which has been focused in uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia for a long time, but they're starting to branch out. They haven't really started looking here in America yet. We, we don't have it as much on a local level, which we used to. So there used to be like the great Boston Globe out, you know, uh, that, that drew the Catholic Church story. But that might be something, what's the local paper here? What's their local investigative team look like? Do they have one? Strong? Strong. So, Follow that stuff and follow it online. Now you didn't know this particular story, and there's, you know, I didn't know it until about noon today because um, there's someone sitting right here who told me about it, you know. But but it turns out there's a lot more of that going on. I mean, a lot more of the investigation happening. But you do have to look for it a little bit. But that's a great question. There was one over here, and then I'm going to come back to there. Um. Thank you very, very, very much. You first came to my attention when I was in China, so I had one specific question about China. Do you have a take on whether Xi Jinping's anti-corruption is a purge or a reform? And then I have a 10 So the China question is a great one, and I, I can't answer it. Okay. I can't answer it. And I have to say, and I think you've got Thieves of State in your hand, and you'll notice, is that what you're, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Thank you. What you're going to notice is there is a gigantic yawning hole called CHINA, right? Like, I didn't touch it. Because I felt like I, first of all, I was focused a little bit on the extremist response, and there isn't one there. But mostly it was because I was a coward. Because I said, I, I can't take this on. I mean, it's like there have been people, and Russia too. So my own boss, we have a, Carnegie has a center in Moscow. And now I'm saying, boy, I was an idiot because she wanted me. She said, put Russia in that book. And I was like, God, like there are Sovietologists and former Soviet. I mean, there's a whole world out there of people who've been working on Russia their whole lives. What am I going to add to that? You know, and I was just intimidated. But I, the question is the really critical question. I can't, I suspect it's some of both is what I suspect. But that's really not based on much 
Um, it's based on sense of smell. But what I will say is that she knew, let's say it's a purge and not a reform, but he knew he could wrap it up in anti-corruption and it was going to go over well. So he knew that his population is indignant too and that anti-corruption as a rationale was going to sell well with the population. Um, then you were going to ask Venn diagrams? Yeah, I just, um, I think your sense of smell is, is probably widely shared. Uh, <laughs> society. I've been there for four years doing research on climate. So my, my Venn diagram question to you is, is if you take climate change, and if the science is correct, we're headed for a lot of suffering, then you take Piketty, and you take uh, income inequality, and you take your work, your, your, your wonderful lecture tonight, but for all Yes, it is. And, um, and I hope you take the lecture and write a book. Um, but it seems to me that I don't see these things constructively playing off of one another. On the contrary, they're all feedback loops. So let's take climate. So what were the, so there's banking, but there's high-end real estate, infrastructure, and there's energy. There's also energy. So I came out of, I come out of a year in, um, in Honduras, they don't have fossil fuels. Uh, they have palm. So what do you do? You cut, you chop down a whole bunch of rainforest and you plant a bunch of palm trees for so-called, and, and then you reap carbon credits because that's so-called renewable energy. Are you kidding me? So, and then you get fossil fuels. So there's a feedback loop between climate and kleptocracy and the um, potential outbursts from it because, because even I don't think that corruption in and of itself alone leads to the kind of explosions that I'm talking about. But let's conjugate corruption with other risk factors. For example, deep identity divide. You get Syria and you get Iraq. Let's conjugate it with environmental pressure, severe environmental pressure. Um, income inequality is also a feedback loop because you have kleptocracy plus income inequality and people are really pissed off because they're looking at you know the other guys who are driving around in fancy cars and all that kind of thing. But the kleptocracy is exacerbating the income inequality also. So all of these are feedback loops that actually exacerbate each other and exacerbate the likelihood, I think, of these things leading to um, uprising, you know, uprisings of some kind or uh, So 
what I, I'm really glad you asked that question because in fact these are transnational kleptocratic networks. They often have nodes, they all have nodes in a country. But think of an airline route map, you know, and where you've got the little point in the hub and then the lines coming out and they're connecting into other hubs. And that's what I was getting at in response to the gentleman back there saying these are globalized networks that I could not agree with you more. And in fact, I was very frustrated at myself on a couple of counts. I, I was really trying to, so this Honduras project, I was really trying to get down to a more granular level of analysis of the country-specific network. And it took me a year. And I'm like, oh, God. And so we come up with a diagram that looks like it's centered on Honduras. And I'm like, this is a completely inaccurate diagram. Because it doesn't show the connections between, like, all of the main private sector guys are running multinationals. Now, most of them are, their activities are focused on Central America. But they're getting pretty significant foreign direct investment from Canada in particular into the mining sector is one. But then you've got stuff like, you know, internet. So there's a whole enablers ring around them. Let's take Azerbaijan again. Azerbaijan, the main, you know, revenue stream captured there, as I saw, one of the main ones is oil, oil and gas. Who's the main um, produce, you know, kind of oil, whatever, partner of SOCAR, which is the national oil company? It's BP. So my question is, BP, which has been up to its eyes in Azerbaijan since the collapse of the Soviet Union, is BP an enabler of the Azerbaijan network? Or is BP, as you suggest, an external network member, and we're into a fully transnationalized network. And I think you're exactly right. So I'm looking at this work on Honduras, and I'm like, ah, oh, darn it. You know, I mean, I know these are transnational networks, but I just got so exhausted after spending a year trying to work it out at the, you know, that I didn't, and I didn't make the diagram even sort of look like that. The next, well, the next one I want to do, to your point, is Washington. And I want to do it as a transnational thing. So on Azerbaijan also, you know the famous Russian rock star guy who helped set up the famous meeting that Don Jr. went to in July? And so there was this weird, it was on behalf of some Russian rock star, and it all sounded a bit bizarre. So that Russian rock, rock star is actually from Azerbaijan. And he's the former son-in-law of the Aliyevs. So it, and he is a Russian citizen. So right there, you've got you know a network that is completely intertwined. Um, as you suggest, on the UN, I'm a little less convinced about the UN. I think the UN is anyway. We could have a conversation about the UN, but certainly the international financial institutions. Right, but, but let's, right, World Bank, uh, IMF. Right, well, they're not, uh, no, 
I mean, one of the really interesting rabbit holes I went down on Honduras was international development financing. So there's, you know, as an enabler. And I picked on, of all places, I picked on Finland, the most beautiful, I love Finland. I mean, it's a fantastic place. It's incredibly clean, corruption wise, and all that stuff. I was absolutely shocked at how they run their development financing. So the Finnish government gives a bunch of money to FinFund, which is supposed to invest it in development type, development friendly environments. Finland's a small enough country that I can go and talk to the CEO of FinFund. FinFund puts an undisclosed amount of money. They layer it just like shell companies. They put an undisclosed amount of money into a multi-investor um, fund called the Central American Mezzanine Infrastructure Fund. This thing has, I don't know, a dozen investors that are everything from USAID to other governments to God knows what all. All of a sudden, first of all, FinFund doesn't even disclose the amount of money. This is Finnish government money. The Finnish people don't know how much of their money went into this fund. Why does a development bank have to keep its investment amount secret. I mean, I was absolutely shocked. And then, so I said, well, what are the guidelines for, you know, cannabis in the development guidelines? Oh, we can't disclose that because, you know, we're just one of the investors. So what I'm also seeing is whatever Finland's guidelines are, they have negotiated the guidelines with another dozen investors, some of which may or may not be development actors. So you're watering down your development objectives right there. Who is running this fund? It's something called Latin America, Latin America Partners, which is a bunch of money managers sitting in Washington, D.C., and, and, and they are a subsidiary of a, of a bigger management outfit, which manages the Sultan of Brunei's money. These people are just money managers. They don't give a damn about, about development. And, and why do we do this? We do it because it's the only way to mobilize the capital that's needed for development. And I'm like, now wait a second, I, I come out of an environment where you had infinite capital available for development. That's called Afghanistan and Iraq, right? How much development did we get? More money does not always equate to more development. On the contrary, how do these people, how does the guy, the CEO of FinFund, not get that? Like, where has he been for the last 15 years? So, so you are absolutely right, and I'm thrilled that you asked that question. Thank you very much. Do we have one down there? Sir, and then we've got a bunch, no, the gentleman with the beard, and then we're going to go back to the row, you three back there. That's me? Okay. You think, he thinks that he's going to get me to, like, shorten my answers by doing that, but that's a, that's a. Uh. Well, thank you for uh, suggesting this network uh, scheme for understanding, you know, how these things are connected. I think it leaves out uh, the question of causality. What exactly uh, 20 years ago made this uh, transition, as you said, the world, or I don't know, United States, or where people started to overvalue money over all other things? Is this some way to think about all of this in terms of causes or some what black really hole in it? Think, so I've got two ideas on that. I haven't researched it at all. But I do think the collapse of communism had a big effect. And I think in you know, the West, there was a confusion between the Soviet Union as an enemy and the notion of collective um, invest, you know, investments in collective well-being. Those got conflated. Um, and 
will of the communist system also allowed for a, a diversion in that direction. There's another kind of hypothesis. So there's a great, a really interesting book written by, actually I recommend the article, written by my oldest friend Sebastian Younger, who wrote Perfect Storm and War and stuff like that. And he wrote an article on PTSD in, um, in Vanity Fair, which I also really recommend. So if you Google Sebastian Younger and it's J-U-N-G-E-R, PTSD, Vanity Fair, you'll find this article. It's really interesting. And what he finds is trauma, which we're all seeing in this country, right? Houston and Las Vegas, we assume that trauma causes people to behave more badly or to be traumatized. It turns out that trauma brings out the best in us. Trauma, um, so what he found is that London during the Blitz had a reduction in mental health issues. People suffer less mental health issues when they are subjected to really difficult conditions because they bind together, they help each other out, and they everyone has a role to play. They, you know, everyone feels like what they're doing has meaning all of a sudden. And so think about we went through two world wars and a depression, right? If you can think about a society that was traumatized, right? I mean, we went through really hard times, and I have this feeling that that spurred a certain number of decades of collective, because what happens when you're subjected to really hard times is we all look out for each other, right? We all become members of the same family, just like everyone in Houston. People didn't ask what color they were or what income bracket they were. Everybody was getting in a boat and people pulling people out of their houses. We were all suddenly concerned with collective well-being because we were under, so depression, World War I, depression, World War II, really excited, I think, the kind of concern with collective well-being in the West. And by, you know, it kind of lasted for a generation. And it wore off. I think that made me What about the rest? Sorry? What about the rest? We always uh, think and talk about the West, but not the rest. Right. What's the role, uh, role of the West in, you know, okay, the history so of the West? Okay, so then on that, I think, I'm just because I spilled some water, so I So I actually think colonialism plays a really important role in places where, again, I haven't researched this, it's just instinct, but colonial um, uh, administration is designed to extract resources from the colony and send them out to the colonial elite. And in a lot of cases, um, you have independence movements where you know people want to serve their own people, but the former colonial powers were pretty good at engineering people into positions of power in those countries that essentially just you know just stepped into the shoes of the colonial powers. And so you get a lot of kind of homegrown elites taking advantage of the same system to sort of serve themselves. So I think that's part of it, too. Back there, we've got three folks. I think you, in the cap, the yellow cap, yep. Yeah. And when you wrapped everything up and you said that you felt like one component to a solution is more conscientious consumerism, I 
sorry, moral licensing? Uh, the sense that if you do one thing, you're permitted to do other things, or like. Oh, I see. Counteracting your carbon footprint. Right. That kind of right. philosophy of if you if you're permitted to have a Western lifestyle, if you do, um, if you wear Tom's shoes. Right. If you buy fair trade coffee. Right. Um, for me, that's that's almost as much of a hurdle as as what got. I think that's a really interesting point, and I wasn't intending to license that kind of moral licensing. Mm -hmm. What I meant is. We all, and, and, and I wasn't saying go out and be consumerist, because some of the consciousness about what you do with this is keep it in your pocket. Like, we don't have to just be doing consumerism all the time. That's not, you know, thrift is actually a really interesting virtue, too, you know, and we can think about that a little bit, too. What I mean is, when you do have to spend this stuff on something, Think about what it is you're spending on. That's kind of I'm not I'm not saying offsetting, and I'm not. Um, I mean I think that's a little bit hypocritical what you're talking about. It is frustrating. Yeah. And you see it all over. It, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting point. Thank you. Yeah. And I think there was one further down on that road before I come back up. So there's two more: the gentleman in blue, and then the gal on the end, and then we'll come back around. Yeah. No. So. Um, uh, these kinds of talks, uh, the talks that explore this type of subject matter, they're, they're I think, really edifying, but um, it's also, um, uh, makes me, it makes me a little bit nervous. Um, one thing, you know, you, you talked about, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the corruption that you experienced in different, you know, countries' contexts, and, um, uh, oh, like, even... Uh, political opposition and insurgents are often instruments of uh, the, the, the folks ruling. And oh, you see, we're seeing it here, and these are examples of what you're seeing here. No, it's all interconnected, and it just makes you feel really helpless. Mm. And then that, and, you know, when when you know we get to the, you know, what do we do? And it's well, here's a fun idea about holding <coughs> signs outside the building or. Um, you know, changing where you have your credit card. Um, I I wonder. I wonder if maybe a better way of framing it, because it really seems like a lot of the stuff that you've described is more of a rather than a new trend. It seems almost more of a regression to the mean of of feudalism of of, of ruling parties viewing their job as to as as raising revenue and distributing it to their instruments that keep them in power. And maybe viewing it in the context of like a um, what we've done, you know, just in the fact that we have all these different people who, you know, are you know, uh, come from such different backgrounds. Um, uh, you know, uh, sharing ideas. Um, this stuff is this stuff is really hard to do um, as as tribal beings. And um, we're you know while this is like a regression, it seems like you know we kind of have to take stock of what we have available to us 
in terms of um, a population that's more educated than you know uh, has been in previous generations, and um, we have language to describe these things that that, that you're talking about um, uh, in ways that we didn't have before. I, I don't know. I just wonder if there's like a different way to talk about this subject that doesn't feel so exhausting and suffocating. Mm. Um, with it, sorry, but we're living in a pretty tough time. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh, I don't know what, it is exhausting, and, um, but we better get after it. And so it means we're gonna have, you know what, we are gonna have to inconvenience ourselves, and we are gonna have to work hard to, you know, it felt pretty crackly in the Gilded Age, and there was a progressive era that took 30, 40 years to to start establishing some norms. So if you want to think about it more, more, um, I, I mean, I was trying to bring it down to the individual so that there are things that you can actually do yourself that you can get up and do tomorrow, but let's get a little bit more systemic. There is going to be an after, right? There's going to be, a, um, you know, and the window of opportunity for the significant reforms that we need to make in this country is going to be pretty short. So we better start, and, and like you and you and folks who are, you know, at least two-thirds my age, uh, we're depending on you people, right, to start planning. What have we learned about how this is functioning in our country? What have we learned about what is no longer a norm? So let's take advantage of the stuff that you're talking about. Now we're talking about this. Now we've got investigative journalists that are revealing some of the stuff. I really wish they had revealed it a couple of years ago, but now they are. So now we can see what's not acceptable. You know what? It's not acceptable for a candidate for president not to release their income taxes. Let's turn that into a law. So we were counting on the norm, and it turns out it's not good enough. So what are some of the laws that we need? What are, how do we get money out of our political system? Because at this point, if you're an elected official, you're spending 75, you know, three quarters of your time on the phone to your, your funders, right? That's not the way the founders intended our democracy to work. That's not, right? So, so I think one of the really, so yeah, it's gonna be really tiring to get after this stuff, but, um, I, I think, you know, and particularly like a political science class or something like that here, that would be a really interesting project. Based on what we've learned in the last eight months, what are the components of a thoroughgoing reform program for this country? Okay, I have a question. I actually have a different one, but it changed a little bit with your question. Your timeline is 20 to 30 years, and you talk about these different actors, and you talk about the fall of communism being kind of a thing that ushered this in. And the other thing that I see that correlates really nicely with that is the rise of liberalism and third-wave Democrats and the idea Absolutely. of development as a priority yeah. and using development and NGOs as a tool that actually uh, deregulation, all of these things that were part of the Absolutely, 100%. How much does America have as responsible? How much are we a major responsible actor? Totally, absolutely. We were, it was kind of a Reagan-Thatcher thing, drove it. Um, and then lots of other people got on the bandwagon. But I think we kind of led the ideological transformation. I couldn't agree with you more. 